This is a podcast from Seven Vineyard. Good morning. Um, I'm Claire. If um, you've joined since the beginning of the service um, or you've joined online partway through and I don't know you, I'm Claire, Marita Owen. Um, together we lead the church. Um, so I'm really excited to be with you this morning. I feel God's put something on my heart for us today. Um, although I have to say, Kate, what incredible thing. It's really hard to follow you. I'm not sure we actually do need to talk after what you just shared. How just so exciting and inspiring. So thank you, Kate. Um, But I wonder, do you ever have that nagging feeling like you're missing out on something? Um, The fear of missing out, better known as FOMO, is described on the Very Well Mind website as the feeling or perception that others are having more fun, living better lives or experiencing better things than you are often exacerbated by social media uh, sites like Facebook and Instagram. Do you ever feel like that? Like other people have more friends or are doing more exciting things at the weekend, maybe have a more fulfilling job or have definitely generally made better choices in their lives than you have? I used to work with a colleague um, who once said, I never want to have any regrets, which sounds reasonable, But years later, it still feeds into my own FOMO. I have this impression that she's living this carefree life, having taken every opportunity and never made any mistakes. These words hang over my head. What if I'm missing out? Um, A few years ago, in the summer of 2019, I started to notice in me a kind of growing underlying niggle that somehow I had not made the best of the opportunities that I'd had in life. And that now at the grand old age of 44, I was now at the end of my time, end of the line and my time had run out. And I remember confiding to, um, you're laughing now, I was going to say, I remember confiding to a friend about this and she just laughed at me. It wasn't that friend, but uh, this friend was in her mid-50s and considered me young. And uh, it is all relative, isn't it? Um, And you'll be glad to know I don't actually feel this way now. Um, At almost 47, I I do realise that um, the age has so much more um, to do with outlook and perspective than it does a number of years. Um, But at this time, at this little midlife crisis that I was having, um, I was asking those questions of, what am I for? Have I somehow uh, missed the mark? Have I not filled my potential, fulfilled my potential? Um, Now, don't get me wrong, I have an incredible husband. Uh, And um, (laughs) I have amazing kids, family and friends. Um, I love Seven and all that we're doing here in Bristol. Um, But these feelings of somehow uh, feeling like you're missing out on something are not always logical, are they? They're those weird emotions that are quite difficult to articulate and wake you up early in the morning. My kids were in their teenage years and I was beginning to anticipate what life might look like when they would eventually leave home. And um, just previous to the summer of 2019, we'd had a really stressful nine months. Owen's dad had sadly died. um, And at the same time, we'd had a rather large building um, projects on on our house that partway through took a, a very dodgy turn. 
And I think all these life events set me to question and feel this sense of unease. And I know it's not uncommon. You may have experienced the same thing yourself. I know for many, the trauma of these last two years of COVID has caused us to reevaluate and to ask some really deep questions. And as we process these things through, we begin to dream again and to reimagine and plan how life might be better. You know, what do I need to be happy? What do I need to be fulfilled to reach my potential and to not miss out? Maybe it's a change of career or that promotion at work. Maybe it's to find a marriage partner or to start that family I've always wanted to. Maybe it's to contribute to society, start that charity or write that book you've always planned to write. Or maybe it's to recover and get well from an illness that has reduced your quality of life. Dreams and aspirations, vision and goals are all great things and God-given, I believe. But what if they don't happen? What if you never make the difference in this world that you hoped you would? What if you never earn enough money to live the lifestyle you dream of? What if you don't meet the person of your dreams and live happily ever after? What if you don't get well? What then? Does that mean that you've missed out? That you've missed the mark, that you're not filling your, fulfilling your potential, that you die with regrets? When we pin all our hopes on that thing that maybe someday might happen, what if it doesn't? The question I want to explore today is not how can I fulfill my dreams or how can I reach my potential, which are not bad questions to ask. But the question I want to explore right now is, how can I live fulfilled today? Jesus said in John 10, 10, that he came to give life, life in all its fullness. So what does that look like for you and for me? How can we live fulfilled today? So in order to explore that question, we're going to continue on the journey through Mark's gospel that Owen started a couple of weeks ago. We're using the book, The King's Cross by Tim Keller. If you want to grab a copy of that and read that along as we work through that book. And we're using it as a springboard for our talks, along with a variety of other um, source material as well. But if you want to turn with me, if you've got your Bibles or your phones, um, I'm going to read it out anyway. Unfortunately, it won't be on the screens today. Um, but please turn with me to Mark 2, ch uh, chapter 2, verse 1. So Jesus has been traveling and teaching throughout the, va the villages in Galilee. And today we pick up the story when he returns to Capernaum, which is a, a small fishing village on the North Sea shore of the Sea of Galilee. So verse one, it says, a few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. Since they could not get, get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above 
above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was is what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat and walk. But I want you to know that the son of man, which is a name Jesus used to refer to himself, has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. He got up, took his mat and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone and they praised God saying, we have never seen anything like this. So what a dramatic scene. A man suddenly comes through the roof while Jesus is speaking. What were these men so determined to get from Jesus? Well, it seems at first that Jesus doesn't quite understand. Jesus turns to the man who is paralyzed, and instead of saying the obvious, rise up and be healed, instead Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. I think if that had been me, I might have said something a bit like, uh, thanks so much. But that's not what I asked for. I'm, I'm paralyzed. I've got a bit more of an immediate problem here. But in fact, Jesus knows something the man does not that he has a much bigger problem than his physical condition. Jesus is saying, I understand your problems. I have seen your suffering and I'm going to get to that. But please realize that the main problem in a person's life is never his suffering. It's his sin. Now, if you find Jesus' response offensive, consider this. If someone says to you, the main problem in your life is not what's happened to you, not what people have done to you. Your main problem is the way you've responded to that. Ironically, that's empowering, right? Because you can't do very much about what's happening to you or, what, or about what other people are doing. But you can do something about yourself. When the Bible talks about sin, it's not just referring to the bad things we do, like being selfish or lying or whatever it may be. Essentially, sin is ignoring God in the world he has made. It's rebelling against him by living without reference to him. It's saying, I'm going to decide exactly how I will live my life. It's living contrary to what he has intended for us. And Jesus said, that is our main problem. Jesus is confronting this man who is paralyzed with his main problem by driving him deep. Jesus is saying, by coming to me and asking for only your body to be healed, you're not going deep enough. You have underestimated the depths of your longing, the depths of your heart, the longings of your heart. Everyone who is paralyzed naturally wants with every fiber of their being to be able to walk. Surely this man would have been resting all his hopes in the possibility of walking again. He's almost surely thinking, if only I could walk again, then I would be set for life. 
I'd never be unhappy. I'd never complain. If only I could have that thing, everything would be okay. Does that sound familiar? And Jesus is saying, son, you're mistaken. When I heal your body, if that's all I do, you'll feel you'll never be unhappy again. But wait two months, four months. The euphoria won't last. The roots of discontentment of the human heart run deep. Jesus knows us too well and loves us too much to just grant us our requests. He wants to take us deep. He wants us to be fulfilled. And sometimes that means answering our prayers in ways we weren't asking for. About 24 years ago, Owen and I had a sense of calling to church leadership and we desperately wanted to move to Bristol. We were living in Reading at the time. I was a physio and Owen decided to retrain into physio because we thought that would be a great vocation to do alongside church leadership. So we we did our research and definitely Bristol, we were certain, was the best place for us. My grandparents lived here and we chatted with them and we began to dream about where we might live. Owen had to apply to six universities, but Bristol was all we needed and the only one we were hanging on for. But rejection after rejection came in from the universities, including from Bristol. So Bristol wasn't to be for us. And we went, ended up going to the only place that Owen got an offer, which was Nottingham. Unbeknown to us, Nottingham was about to be the place where we would be trained up in leadership within the vineyard. We became part of Trent Vineyard Church. After a couple of years, we joined the staff team and were right at the heart of the inner workings of the church as it grew from about 200 people to about 1,800 people in the 11 years that we were there. It was there that we were resourced and equipped to plant seven vineyards here in Bristol. If God had granted our request to come here to Bristol 24 years ago, Seven and all that God has done through Seven would have looked very different. In fact, I'm not sure Seven would exist at all. God knows what we need and what he's doing better than we do. And he's not afraid to give us what what we need in spite of what we're asking for. So Jesus is saying to this man, your main problem is your sin. Let's deal with that first. On Boxing Day this year, you may remember it was a really dry, sunny day after quite a wet Christmas day, what it was where we were anyway. And so on Boxing Day, we chose to go out for a beautiful walk through the woods, blue sky, sun shining, amazing views. It was glorious. Took me, reminded me of our summer holidays, it was that nice. And on our way back from the woods, we chose to take a little track past a sweet little cottage down the hill, past what looked like some Airbnb properties. And there was someone in the window, and I thought to myself, oh, they've obviously hired that out for Christmas, how nice. And then I noticed Owen, who was a few metres ahead, diplomatically trying to defuse a potential conflict with a rather disgruntled gentleman. Apparently he was the farmer and we were trespassing mistakenly on his land. Unbeknown to us, there was no sign around, but that is what we were doing on his private land. He wasn't too happy. 
To be fair, he had just recently had one of his sheep killed by a walker whose dog has got off the lead. So give him his due. Anyway, because we clearly didn't have a dog and we put on our best smiles and it was Boxing Day, he let us go and we continued on our way. But this is often how we see sin, isn't it? Overstepping the mark, crossing a boundary, breaking the rules. And if we do, we can expect God, like the angry farmer, to track us down and sort us out. This understanding of sin is breaking rules we don't always understand or realise are there. Fuels an image of God as distant and angry and somewhat irrelevant. On a Jewish philosophy website, I recently read this. It said, the word sin has no connection with endless guilt or eternal damnation, but it does have a lot to do with archery. Let me explain what I mean. The Greek word for sin here is hamateia, and its Hebrew equivalent, guitar, both mean missing the mark or off the mark. So, for example, in the book of Judges, soldiers from the tribe of Benjamin are described as being so good with their weapon that they can aim at a hare and not Kate. Kate is a derivative of Qatar. So aim at a hair and not sin, basically. But this makes no sense, does it? To aim at a hair and not sin. Obviously, the text means to aim at a hair and not miss, to not hit off target. That's just one example. There's many more. Ultimately, sin is about missing the mark not measuring up, falling short of something. It's falling short of what God, our creator, has intended for us. And ultimately, when it boils down to it, all our sin is against God. And that makes sense, doesn't it? Because how else could Jesus forgive us? Let's say my three kids are having an argument. They're all teenagers now, so I know it's difficult to imagine, but stick with me. Anyway, say it all gets a bit physical and our youngest, Amelie, um, decides to throw a punch at our eldest son, Jake, and she gets him on the nose, nosebleed, blood everywhere. Then our middle son, Dan, the peacemaker, comes along and says, Amelie... I forgive you for punching Jake on the nose. It's all right. I'm going to let this one go. What do you think Jake's going to say once he's calmed down and probably punched Dan himself? But he's going to say, Dan, you can't forgive her. Oh, yeah, I can forgive her. It's not your place to. She didn't hit you. She hit me. You can only forgive a sin if it's against you. When Jesus says to this man, your sins are forgiven, he's actually saying, your sins have really been against me. Romans 3 says this in verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all are justified freely by his grace through the, through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. So, if sin is ultimately against God, falling short of what he has intended, why is this our problem? If I dare say it, why is it not God's problem? 
if we are not doing what he wants, but living the way that we want to? If it's not about breaking a rule and an angry God, what is this about and why is it our problem? Around the time of 2019, when I was having my mini midlife crisis, um, I began to explore my, uh, more about who God is, and in particular, the three persons of the Trinity that make up God and how they relate to each other. And Owen talked about the Trinity a couple of weeks ago. You might want to go back and listen to that talk. But I just want to kind of build on that a little bit today. For centuries, theologians have described the relationships between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as a dance, where each person of the Trinity knows and loves each other, glorifies each other, they commune with each other and defer to one another. Each person envelops and encircles the others, a continual outpouring and infilling from each person of the Trinity to another. St. Bonaventure said that God is a fountain fullness of love. Nothing can stop the flow of divine love. I love this poem by William Paul Young, author of The Shack, who attempts to capture what it means that God is three. One, alone, is not by nature love, or laugh, or sing. One, alone, may be prime mover, unknowable, indivisible, all. And if everything is all, and all is one, one is alone, self-centred, not love, not laugh not sing. Two, yin yang, dark light, male, female, contending dualism, affirming evil, good, and striving towards balance, at best face to face, but never community. Three, face to face to face, community, Ambiguity, mystery, love for the other and for the other's love. Within, other-centered, self-giving, loving, singing, laughter. A fourth is created, ever-loved and loving. A fourth is created. We are the product of this dance and we are invited into the dance. Carl McCollman, a contemplative writer and teacher, puts it like this. God is in us because we are in Christ. As members of the mystical body, Christians actually partake in the divine nature of the Trinity. We don't merely watch the dance we dance the dance. We join hands with Christ and the spirit flows through us and between us. And our feet move always in the loving embrace of the Father. In that we are members of the mystical body of Christ. We see the joyful love of the Father through the eyes of the Son. And with every breath we breathe the Holy Spirit. 
I don't know if you remember as a child or if you're a parent of a, a baby or a toddler, whether you can picture what it's like when a child crawls into bed to be between their two parents. There is no other place that that child would rather be so loved so safe so secure that absolutely nothing else matters they are the product of their parents love and they are enfolded into and encircled within the love of their two parents it's that that's the place that the father son and holy spirit invite you and me into this is what God has intended for us and when we miss the mark on this that becomes our problem I love the way Jesus responds to this man who is paralyzed when he says son your sins are forgiven he calls him son as we consider the trinity God only makes sense in relationship. That's what makes God who he is. Three relationships in one. The father is father to the son. And the son is the son of the father. And the spirit is the spirit of both the father and the son. They are not three independent beings. But it's their relationship that defines them. That's what makes God God. And it's the same with us. Who we are in relationship is where we find our meaning. And Jesus knows this and cuts right to the heart when he calls him son. Before Jesus says anything, he says, this is who you are. First and foremost, you are a child of God. Your sins are forgiven. Isn't Jesus incredible? John 3, 17 says, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And in the words of the Apostle Paul, to reconcile all things to himself. And so he says the same to each of us. Son, daughter, child, this is who you are to me. Your sins are forgiven. There's nothing between us. You're invited to the dance. So what does it, this look like in reality in everyday life to take part in the dance? In his book, The Divine Dance, um, by Richard Rohr, he attempts to describe this. And he says, our practical felt experience of receiving the gift of the Trinity offers a grounded reconnection with God, with ourselves, with others and the world. A grounded reconnection. He suggests that this continual inflowing and outpouring of love between the Trinity that overflows to you and I is the life force of everything. The life energy between each and every being, which we might call love. Instead of God being removed, watching life happen from afar and judging it, he is most moved, maker, intimately participating in ongoing co-creation, 
And this makes so much sense when we read passages like this in John 1. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all humankind. Or in Colossians, it says, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him, all things hold together. To help us visualize this Trinitarian flow, Raw paints a picture. He says this, Every vital impulse, every force toward the future, every creative momentum, every loving surge, every dash toward beauty, every running towards truth, every bit of ambition for humanity and the earth for wholeness and holiness is the eternal flowing life of the Trinitarian God. This triune God allows us, impels you to live easily with God everywhere and all the time. In the budding of a plant, the smile of a gardener, the excitement of a teenage boy over his new girlfriend, the tireless determination of a research scientist, the pride of a mechanic over his hidden work under the bonnet, the tenderness with which eagles feed their chicks and the downward flow of every mountain stream. And he goes on. For me, entering into the divine dance, living in the flow, has been about finding God in everyone and everything. It connects me to something far larger and more meaningful than just myself. It opens my eyes and raises my faith for what God is doing in our midst and strengthens my belief that he really is working in every situation for good. As part of Emotionally Focused, the spiritual formation pathway that we run here, every person chooses vows that they would like to underpin the way that they live their life. And one of my vows is don't stop the flow. The understanding being that this overflow from the Trinity to each of us, that we then give and receive to each other, is in itself life-giving. But when we stop the flow, either we choose to cut ourselves off from God or from other people, it's the opposite of life. We dry up and we die inside. Now, I know the difference when I'm living in the flow and when I'm stopping the flow. The former feels joyful, hopeful, freeing, and the other does not. When I get stressed, tired, overwhelmed, my natural tendency is to batten down the hatches. Ask Owen, he'll tell you that. I close down emotionally and get very functional. Just head down, just keep on going. But there's no joy in that. There's no fun in that for me or for anyone else around me. That's not living fulfilled. You can tell when I'm stopping the flow. It's when I'm so preoccupied with my stuff that I don't look up from my computer when my kids walk in from school and I just shout, hello, without turning around. It's when I walk down the street and don't have the emotional capacity to just simply smile at someone as they pass. It's when I can't be present in the moment and enjoy it because I have a million to-do things swilling around my head. 
It's those times when I choose to be selfish rather than generous, angry rather than gracious, and to fear rather than trust. On the flip side, however, when I am in the flow, both receiving and giving, Owen has a happy wife when he walks through the door at the end of the day, who maybe has a bit, been a bit more creative with dinner that night. Is when I don't wake up early in the morning with thoughts going through my head, but I'm woken abruptly by the alarm. It's when I can laugh at myself and not feel the need to be defensive. It's when I have hope and peace about my future, knowing that I am not the centre of my world and I belong to something and someone far greater than I. This is my experience of living fulfilled in the here and now. I don't manage it every day, but I'm learning. So just think for a moment. What does it feel like for you when you are in the flow? You might not have called it that, but I believe living in the flow from time to time is what it means to be human. We're just not very good at staying there. What does it look like for you? What does it look like for you when you stop the flow? What are the signs for you? How does life change? This invitation to the divine dance, to live in the flow, to live fulfilled in the here and now on a daily basis is open to every single one of us. It's not so much about doing, but more about letting go opening ourselves to God and to others. If you want to explore this further, I'd highly recommend the gold course that Greg and Liz Nixon run. This is a six-week course that delves deep into the three persons of the Trinity and grounds us in our identity as a child of God. And in addition, our three Big priorities here at Seven to commit to our spiritual emotional health, to commit to our family, friends and neighbours and to commit to serving our city are all about what it means to live in this Trinitarian flow. And next week, our annual Vision Sunday, we'll be highlighting rhythms here at Seven that can help you to invest in those three priorities. So please do, please do join us next week, either in person or online. But for now, um, let's just pray. I, God's here, he invites us, and I just want to give us each of us a moment just to connect and respond to Jesus ourselves. So let's stay seated. If you're home, please do join in with us. You may want to close your eyes. But God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, thank you that you are here right with us this morning. Thank you that you invite us to this dance, to this life of love, of fulfillment, of identity as a child, a product of your love, enveloped in your love. I just want to give each of us a moment to respond to God because it's an invitation and Invitations normally invoke an RSVP, which could be either way. But I just want to take a moment where you are. 
you might just want to picture God just standing in front of you. It may be that you picture Jesus or the Father or the Holy Spirit, whoever it is that you most easily relate to. But just picture them standing in front of you and holding their hand out to you, reaching to you and saying, come and join the dance. How do you want to respond? It may be that you're all in. You're like, yeah, absolutely. I need more of this. I want more of this. It may be that you feel a little bit hesitant, a bit unsure. And it may be that you're just like, I'm not in that place right now. Hear this. There's no should. There's no should. Just God wants us to be real. So with God just standing in front of you, inviting you, just take a moment just to talk with him about where you're at, about how you want to respond. Just take this time, just you and him.